0: This is David Rovix and you are tuned to 3CR 855 AM Melbourne, Australia.
1: Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do and everything can change.
2: Welcome to the Climate Action Show. My name is Vivian Langford and salut Babette. We would like to pay our respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, from whose land we are broadcasting at Radio 3CR, and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, where we can be heard at Radio Skid Row. Hello everybody. The Climate Action Show today is about jobs. While preparing the show, The April 4th IPCC report came out, and we'll start with Antonio Gutierrez, who is the Secretary General of the United Nations. The people doing the job of leadership in government, in banks, and in business receive his scorn. They're fast-tracking us, he says, to an unlivable world of water shortage and disaster. He says climate activists are portrayed as dangerous radicals. And indeed, it is becoming more dangerous to take climate action. But the people we interview are doing an essential job. You will hear from Karen Purcell in Wollongong, which is a coal mining community whose jobs depend on coal and steel. And they're sounding the alarm about all the good drinking water, tens of thousands of litres of it every day, now gushing through the mines and becoming toxic. She tells us that in Germany, the people are employed there to keep the water out of the old mines, and they call it a perpetual cost. And we will eventually have to face this too, and especially if we keep opening up new mines. Meanwhile, the big switch to renewable energy is on. Kurt Johnson, our roving reporter, finds out where the skills shortages are. Will training the workforce we need be an election issue? The ALP is offering 10,000 new energy apprenticeships and $10 million through TAFE in a new energy skills program. The Greens say electricity must be publicly owned as an essential service. They also want TAFE and uni courses to be free so people can retrain without crippling debt. And retraining is going to be the name of the game. A lot of our workforce does not want to be on the scrap heap. They need to retrain and we need to provide the courses immediately and clearly defined pathways. The Liberals in New South Wales have a new diploma course in renewable energy engineering, but federally, as far as I can see, it's mostly about gas. So whether you are out there blocking a gas project, delaying the Adani coal mine and the huge Galilee Basin behind it, or whether you are informing the public of the danger we are in as our precious water gushes down into crumbling mines, or you might be looking for new skills that will help build the energy revolution. This show is for you. So first let's here from Antonio Gutierrez.
1: His report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is a litany of broken climate promises. It is a file of shame Cataloguing the empty pledges that put us firmly on track towards an unlivable world. We are on a fast track to climate disaster. Major cities underwater, unprecedented heat waves, terrifying storms, widespread water shortages, the extinction of a million species of plants and animals. And this is not fiction or exaggeration. It is what science tells us will result from our current energy policies. We are on a pathway to global warming of more than doubled 1.5 degree limit agreed in Paris. Some government and business leaders are saying one thing but doing another. Simply put, they are lying. And the results will be catastrophic. This is a climate emergency. Climate scientists warn that we are already perilously close to tipping points that could lead to cascading and irreversible climate impacts. But high-emitting governments and corporations are not just turning a blind eye, they are adding fuel to the flames. They are choking our planet based on their vested interests and historic investments in fossil fuels when cheaper, renewable solutions provide green jobs, energy security, and greater price stability we left COP26 in Glasgow with a naive optimism based on new promises and commitments. But the main problem, the enormous growing emissions gap, was all but ignored. And the science is clear. To keep the 1.5 degree limit agreed in Paris within reach, we need to clap global emissions by 45% this decade. But current climate pledges would mean a 14% increase in emissions. And most major emitters are not taking the steps needed to fulfill even these inadequate promises. Climate activists are sometimes depicted as dangerous radicals. But the truly dangerous radicals are the countries that are increasing the production of fossil fuels. Investing in new fossil fuel infrastructure is moral and economic madness. Mm. Such investments will soon be stranded assets, a blot on the landscape and a blight on investment portfolios. But it doesn't have to be this way. Today's report is focused on mitigation, cutting emissions. It sets out viable, financially sound options in every sector that can keep the possibility of limiting warming to 1.5 degrees alive. First and foremost, we must triple the speed of the shift to renewable energy. And that means moving investments and subsidies from fossil fuels to renewables now. In most cases, renewables are already far cheaper. It means governments ending the funding of coal, not just abroad, but at home. And it means climate coalitions made up of developed countries, multilateral development banks, private financial institutions, and corporations with adequate technologies, supporting major econo- emerging economies in making this shift. It means protecting forests and ecosystems as powerful climate solutions. It means rapid progress in reducing methane emissions, and it means implementing the pledges made in Paris and Glasgow. Leaders must lead, but all of us can do our part. We owe a debt to young people, civil society, and indigenous communities for sounding the alarm and holding leaders accountable. We need to build on their work to create a grassroots movement that cannot be ignored. If you live in a big city, a rural area, or a small island state, if you invest in the stock market, If you care about justice and our children's future, I am appealing directly to you. Demand that renewable energy is introduced now at speed and at scale. Demand an end to coal-fired power. Demand an end to all fossil fuel subsidies. Today's report comes at a time of global turbulence. Inequalities are at unprecedented levels. The recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic is scandalously uneven. Inflation is rising. And the war in Ukraine is causing food and energy prices to skyrocket. But increasing fossil fuel production will only make matters worse. Choices made by countries now will make or break the commitment to 1.5 degrees. A shift to renewables will mend our broken global energy mix and offer hope to millions of people suffering climate impacts today. Climate promises and plans must be turned into reality and action now. It's time to stop burning our planet and start investing in the abundant renewable energy all around us. So
3: stand up proud, you singers all. You have the right to stand as tall as those who grow and those who tend. As those who make and those who mend. So stand up tall, you singers all of all the life at your command. You have the right to make or mend, to break or blights within your might. But what will you tell yourself at night? So stand up proud, you singers all. You You have the right to stand as tall as those who grow and those who who tend. tend as those who make and those who mend. So stand up tall, you singers all. With empty pockets, empty hands, within your voice your wealth abounds. The common currency of song, we learn, we keep, we pass along. So stand up proud you singers all
2: has an article called could a skills shortage stall the renewable energy revolution and I think education is a big part of how um, government will prepare for the future and I thought I'd ask him to tell us what he's found especially as we're leading up to a a now a new election so Kurt what skills are we talking about
0: yeah so there's really two tiers of skills uh, that is needed for the uh, renewable energy revolution there's ones which uh, come out of you know a, a university and that's your engineers your structural engineers your electrical engineers and then the second one is more the the trades and um that's coming out of uh vocational education um and that's looking more at electricians
2: well tell us what the head of Vestas would tell electrical engineering students I think you you quoted a lot from him he sounded a very nice kind of lively man what would he he say to students who are doing electrical engineering
0: yeah so that's Peter Cowling and um yeah he was very enthusiastic to to talk to me even though he's very very busy just because he felt so passionate about you know dealing with this skills problem and um so he would tell you know, university students, electrical engineers, that they they had to do this particular uh, elective that would make sense, that that would kind of give them a pathway into the renewable uh, sector. But then he'd also say that uh, if they did that, he would be happy to bundle them into a limousine and uh, you know give them give them a job straight away. That's that's the sort of appetite for um, graduates uh, that that to, to to go into renewable
2: energy. Yeah, well, this picks up the thing about the competition for jobs. You know, there's a scarcity of skilled workers. And as you told me, there's a lot of projects. My cousin told me yesterday about some big tunnel. He went across the Westgate Bridge and he said, this is a huge West tunnel. And there's certainly tons of that in Sydney. <laughs> is this competing for people who want to work in renewable jobs, which would all be in regional places where you can build a wind farm?
0: Yeah, well, that's exactly right. So there's this huge drive for skills uh, and, and there's a massive drive to build big infrastructure. Now, big infrastructure is really, really well-funded. It's, it's government-funded and what happens quite often, and I, I spoke with Richard Dennis about, about this, he's, a, he's an economist, um, and he was saying that what happens is these massive infrastructure projects, uh, they go for the contract, they get the contract, and then they try and find the skills to do it. So because there's so much money being thrown at massive infrastructure, you get kind of inflated wages and w- renewable energy projects have quite a difficult time um, competing with that uh, for the exact same skills because they're competing for the same skill pool. Yeah. Like exactly. Like you said, you've got massive tunnels being built all across Sydney. I got a friend in Roselle and there's a big tunnel that's being um dug right under his house uh and same thing happening in 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 melbourne um you know there's there's that's where the population centers are so you've got population centres in, in the two major cities it's very easy uh you, you have a much larger pool there to to kind of compete with yeah the idea is that you don't you, not only do you have to compete uh with these big infrastructure but you have that geographical geographical some would say a disadvantage there's another angle to that which is you can frame these renewable energy zones as uh, a tree change so rather than to have to live in the city someone who's say a structural engineer or electrical systems engineer they can go out into the country and they can um, you know have a a very good wage and um, they don't have to you know sit in traffic all the time
2: okay well with an election in mind the alp's richard miles who's the shadow minister for skills he's very critical of falling numbers in apprenticeships under the coalition and he's pledged a oh, 10,000 new energy apprenticeships is this enough
0: yeah that was a real sticking point when i um when i researched this article um it was that there was a question of Whose job is it to create um, these skills? To really to to foster these skills, um, big industry relies on the government, and smaller industry relies on sort of bigger industry. And there's an un, unanswered question of, you know, that risk where you have. I didn't include it in the article, but I did speak with the uh, electrical workers union and. I was told a story in there, which has happened quite frequently, where you have a, a small, medium-sized business. They take on a, an electrical apprentice. They, the electrical apprentice, comes in. Now, that's that's a really significant um, investment from these this this business that's taking on an apprentice because it's it's three to four years but you still have these, uh, you know, people, you know, these workers that are really proficient having to uh, take their, take time off the job to train apprentices. And then there's stories where they get into the third or fourth year, they get into the final year, uh, these apprentices, and then they get kind of get poached by another, another small or medium business. Right. And then you have this other business that is taking advantage of this investment, uh, that a competitor has done. So that's, that's a real problem. And this is a problem that, that I got the sense hadn't been solved since, you know, the binge of privatization uh, in the nineties where you had, you know, in, in Victoria, you had the state electricity commission, and you also had the railways. Uh, these are big national projects. Um, they, they, used to turn out a whole bunch of uh, apprentices, not just for uh, the railways or the electrical grid, but they turned out apprentices and, and fully qualified workers that could work all the way across the country. And you sort of had these state commission, uh, state corporations investing in skills that the whole country benefited from. Um, now, that's, that's an old model. I don't think we'll ever go back to that. Mm-hmm. But... It's still a way of um, generating um, big, big pool of of, of skills that hasn't really been replaced. So we we really need a new model. I think Labor's 10,000 apprenticeships is a really, really strong start, but but there's an argument that more needs to be done.
2: We're talking to Kurt Johnson about his article, Could a Skills Shortage stall the Renewable Energy Revolution? In New South Wales this year, TAFE is offering And new diploma. And by the way, I've I've understood that the biggest development in jobs will be in New South Wales and Queensland. You know, this renewable energy transition is is going to be big up here. And they're offering a new TAFE course called Diploma of Renewable Energy Engineering. And I'm wondering, is it all up to the states to create these courses? I'm wondering, is it very patchy? I'd like to have an overview of, you know, if someone wanted to get into this, you know, someone who might be listening, who's at school now, thinking I'm in year eleven, where am I going to head is there some central place that people can find that out
0: well the i mean it is yeah the they are uh, the vocational education is handled uh that it is handled by the states and so um but in my research, I found that uh, the states handled or the, the TAFE in particular handled vocational education really, really well. They were engaging with industry really effectively. Uh, and I heard that from the side of industry as well. Um, they're creating these renewable energy hubs where these, these educational centers. So the old, the old model for TAFE used to be every TAFE would deliver all these different courses. Uh, Now, that model has changed to having regional centres which specialise in different types of TAFE courses, right? So the first place that I would look, I know there is, in Wollongong, there there is a really strong renewable energy TAFE there. And there's also one in Victoria, which I think is in uh, Warrnambool.
2: That, that's good that I, I always want more central planning and I Jeff Sparrow who's just written this book called Crimes Against Nature he says look, oh, yeah. we have to go back to the planned economy and that sort of sounds like all oh, Soviet Soviet style <laughs> and planning of everything everyone freaks out at that but honestly I'm I'm desiring some central planning now you know the yeah. getting this rolled out quickly and not as you know from your experience in the Latrobe Valley not leaving anyone behind That's kind of Mantra, where we have to remember. But tell us more about this Vestus company. It sounds like they are really stepping up to the reality that renewable energy will be running the grid quite soon. And I think you mentioned in the article they've partnered with TAFE in Ballarat on something called the Asia Pacific Renewable Energy Training Centre. What did you get out of that?
0: Well, that's really flipping around the whole equation from it being this skills shortage where we will we we're always going to look at it as a liability a risk to a project and flipping it around and saying like look we've got this fantastic education system we've got in australia it's world class let's stop looking at uh, a skills shortage as a risk and really invest a whole bunch of money in education and then we can be a world center you know in turning out skills that are needed for this global renewable bank yeah. and that's another point is that the borders are closed at the moment but when they open up or this is not an Australian problem this is a global problem and all these we've all these other countries that are going to be competing for the exact same skill set it's not going to be something where we just throw open the borders and suddenly you know we could just import all these all these different skills, uh, which is it's essentially poaching skills that have been developed by another country. So mm. that's that exact same problem that we had with apprentices sort of writ large on a global scale. But it's not something we could do. You know, we offer our, uh, a fairly good salary. Uh, lifestyle here is great, but, you know, beaches aren't going to be enough to fi- uh, fix the, the skills shortage here. So the idea is that we really invest heavily on these technical skills, these technical colleges, and that we can be a, uh, you know, a, a, a global source for renewable skills, not just renewable energy.
2: And also, Kurt, you know, that strikes me how wonderful it would be if I went and did, say so I was young again, I went and did a course at that Ballarat College, I could then get a job maybe in Denmark, you know, this would be an international um, qualification, wouldn't it? You could travel with that, which is very yeah. Incredible. You know. Yeah,
0: and and just a note there that um, that uh, Asia Pacific Renewable Energy Training Centre, they have a particular—I uh, can't recall it off, off the top of my head—but they have a particular uh, certification, which is an EU certification. Now that's very hard to get. They're the only—they're uh, yeah. the only uh, centre in all of Australia wow. that can do that, and that, but, and that means that, that you're totally right—that graduates from there can work anywhere in the EU which is very attractive, right?
2: Well, listeners, you heard it first here. I'm sure that Radio National hasn't mentioned this to me at all, so Kurt's mm-hmm. told us today here. Could it, could, um, we haven't mentioned solar panels, you know, the more humble level of renewable energy, but it's a huge employer and batteries now are coming up and there's a lot of work there. And I wonder, are they getting the trained workers they need?
0: Yeah, that's like... That's that's a totally different story. That's that's really interesting because that Australia, as you know, is the highest, you know, highest level of rooftop solar adopter in the world. Uh, those businesses are, are really small, you know, um, it doesn't take much to create, a, a it, you know, it doesn't, they don't have to be very big businesses on the same scale as, you know, big solar farms or big wind farms. So that's much more of a small business problem, but they are struggling as well, and they are competing with construction industry. They very much need electricians now. Electricians, out of all the different professions that are needed by a renewables boom, are, are the highest in demand, and they're needed everywhere. They're needed in big infrastructure. They're needed in construction. You know, you know, they're needed in pro- uh, housing everything needs needs electrician, so that's very much reliant on um the vocational education system which there's actually a really interesting cultural quirk that I I learned about while I was researching this which is you know it's quite difficult for people you know how many parents want their children to go to university and see going to TAFE as the inferior option mm-hmm. you know that's that's the culture that we've sort of fostered in this country. And I spoke to people and they were saying that there are people that are going into university who would be much better suited in TAFE, but there's this stigma against TAFE. So having that cultural change so that there is enough of these skills, that's quite a difficult problem. And I'm not sure how you treat that.
2: Oh, it'll just happen, I think. But I remember, well, when, it's only a generational shift. Look, my, when I went to university, I had a scholarship. My father was really suspicious. I mean, he couldn't prevent me going. But he's, what do you want to go there for? Like, no one in our family's ever been there. Why? Like, even where is it? <laughs> wow. yeah. yeah. So that was, that's only a generation ago. Um. Look, I want to make a plug here for the Smart Energy Council, because um, I'm going to interview them later on in May. They've got a big conference coming up, and every time they have one of these international smart energy conferences, um, they have a separate strand of training. And it's I think it's people who are qualified people, but getting upskilling. And I think in this field, there's a rapid change. You know, you have to keep upskilling. Okay. And um, I just noticed I never go into that pavilion, but I always see these hundreds of Mostly men in there learning new skills, and I think the Smart Energy Council, honestly, and they advocate for clean energy. There, they get political. They're not frightened of you know confronting politicians and all of that. And and they that that's where the brains are, as as far as I can see. But surely, you know, I'm I don't I only get the view I've got. But Smart Energy Council pretty good. If our listeners, you know, are thinking about jobs in this area, they are very good at helping you find the places to get the education. Look, the last question is, do you think we need an energy transition authority? I know I'm a f- fan of you know planned economies and central control and, and a big overview, but surely we can't go on in this sort of dad's army way of just commercial companies poaching from yeah. others and all of that. And I wonder, do you think we need that sort of thing to retrain and redeploy? workers. And I, I can see in other countries, you've interviewed once before, trade unionists from Germany, he told us all about it. I'll never forget that interview. It was relatively straightforward once they got everybody at the table. And in Australia, apparently job losses in coal, and well, not necessarily gas, but co- in the coal sector will be more than compensated for by jobs in renewable energy. That was from the Clean Energy Council. They've stated that. But this is not Germany and we don't have these big policies, we're going towards an election, do you think that would be a winning concept, an energy transition authority?
0: Look, I think it needs to be way better managed than it is being managed at the moment. I don't see any harm in that, that, that approach. But yeah, I also think that there needs to be a lot more of a cohesive policy approach to how these things are done. In a policy mm. vacuum like we have at the moment, it's too much of a risk for companies to invest heavily in labor. And that's the point is that it's it's less about a lack of management and it's more about confidence in industry and in it, to be able to make these long-term investments. I mean, you have a look at how many false starts there've been for renewables in this country. And you know, uh, these big, big, International investors—they're—they're they're afraid. Even though we have such massive competitive advantages here, it's really difficult for them to commit if when when the government is flim flamming so much when there's so when there's such a policy vacuum. So I think that first and foremost, strong and decisive policy uh, that we are pursuing renewable energies is, is that would be the best first step.
2: What was the fun you had? What was the best fun you had doing the research for this?
0: Look, it's just. Taking this idea about asking a question in the beginning and figuring out whether, uh, you know, asking whether uh, there will be a skills shortage and then kind of unspooling that and talking to different people, uh, that whole adventure is really great. Sometimes you, you you think you're barking up the wrong tree, and then there's a you know there's a there's an epiphany moment, and you're like, oh wow, there is a real problem here, and hardly anyone's talking about it. So the whole process is 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 a really good time.
2: Kurt Johnson. Could a skills shortage stall the renewable energy revolution?
3: So you'll find it really fascinating when you look at all the different announcements that have come out with the COVID-19 economic response policy from different state governments. The states that still own pretty much all of their electricity networks, those states have been able to announce various measures of relief But then the states that have privatized most of their energy assets, such as New South Wales and Victoria especially, those states have done nothing in this area. So what we actually see then is the problem is when you privatize these utilities, the flexibility of the government to then use utilities as a way to soften these economic impacts has been removed. And they're just protecting these private utility companies which have a monopoly sort of regulated industry from being able to experience any sort of profit losses. Unless the government is going to come in and force the private owners to take losses through direct regulation, nothing is going to stop them from bleeding people dry in a time of crisis. 3CR, your station in struggle and solidarity. Jump online and give what you can. Go to 3cr.org.au.
2: is with us from the Protect Our Water Alliance. She's in Darrawal country, that's in Wollongong, and I'm in Sydney, but we are linked by water. Five million people, including me, get our water from Warranora Dam, and nowhere else in the world is longwall coal mining allowed to proceed under a city's water supply. Yet, a subsidiary of Peabody Energy has begun to mine below the Warrenora Reservoir. You've got 20 independent scientists to research this, and they said they were very worried. They wrote a letter, public letter. Shouldn't they be able to model where it's safe to mine? I
4: mean, wouldn't they know if the water catchment was going to leak? Yes, they do, and they do know that it's leaking. Like, there's several mines under the water catchment, and there's several reservoirs. So what you have, the water catchment is the greater area of like pristine bush surrounding the dams or the reservoirs that hold the water supply for Shoalhaven, um, the Illawarra, um, the Southern Highlands and Sydney. And there's quite a few dams as we call them or water reservoirs. Uh, and the, the catchment area Includes special areas where we're not allowed to go. Nobody's allowed to go in there to keep them pristine for our water. So our water is safe and, you know, pure to drink. Peabody Mine, which is just a bit north of Wollongong at Helensburg, the, the actual shaft goes down and, and in and under and is now going under Warrenora Dam the reservoir. But usually the mines don't do that. They just go under the catchment area surrounding the dam and there's regulations about where they're allowed to mine, how close they're allowed to mine to the dam walls for instance. But yes, they do actually the mines I think, you know, by the amount of water that they pump out because the water seeps into the mines so the mines are constantly pumping out this water and Draining it or or um, shipping it down in the case of Dendrovia and Appen Mine, they ship it down and they discharge it into a creek down near the steelworks at Port Kembla because it's very salty water as well because it's been leached through the rock so it's it can't be discharged into fresh water streams for instance so that's why they ship it down and they chuck it into a um, a creek that's tidal so it yeah. goes out in. The ocean, but it's thousands, tens of thousands of liters of water per day that is being um, emitted from these mines, and that comes from the cracking that has occurred, and it's surface water that seeps through the rock and enters the mine and has to be pumped out so that they can continue to mine. So they, even the mines know how much water, and yeah, so people are monitoring it, but you can't really monitor it all. No, and that's what the scientists
2: said. That there's actually no modelling that can fully explain where it'll go, and that long wall mining. I've only ever seen films about it, but apparently, you know, things collapse after the mine has gone along. You know, and they've got all the coal out, and then yeah. things collapse. You can't predict where it'll collapse. Is that right? Well, that's how it works,
4: really. The long wall miners are huge machines. They might be like, you know, the the long wall mines might be hundreds of meters across. Um, so the mine machine goes in digs out the coal and it backs out and they it collapse the roof collapses behind it that's what it's designed to do it's not like the old fashioned method of board and pillar yeah. where we used to go in with picks and yeah. you would see all the props holding the roof up and yeah. that when we yeah. finish mining those props and everything stay there and it's not like that it's meant to collapse Golly oh so it cracks God. all the way up.
2: Yeah. Look, I know there's been a massive rallying of local people ar- around this slogan, no mining in the water catchment. It seems so simple to me. Obviously, the water in this incredibly dry continent, we, we value every drop of it. And you're telling me it's gushing out now into, you know, um, these ponds. Yeah. Um, yeah. This may not have reached the ears of Sydney and Melbourne people who would be shocked to know what you know. Tell us what you've seen, you know, actually, um, when you have seen photos, I know you can't go into those catchment areas, but you've seen photos, haven't you? And, and um, a lot of there's a lot of I've seen one photo with all yellow water. Kind of What, what, what happens?
4: Yes, um, I personally haven't been able to go in, although some members of power have been. You can request to go in and some people have. Um, it's a very long, drawn out process. Been going in, and parks and wildlife people um, also have been in with um, potential miners and have pho- photographed. There's um, cracking to huge slabs of sandstone with cracks like you know, like five inches wide that go down hundreds of meters. Mm-hmm. Um, streams and riverbeds have been cracked, and actually, you can see methane gas bubbling out of the water. There's also something called upsidence where it actually um, pushes the rock up like you know like a a triangle up and and you get these massive slabs of rock that you can see it's not natural that it's done that something's caused it to do that. The cracking causes um, the water when it goes through it to pick up all sort of um, heavy metals and minerals that have been contained in that rock, it's, it's dissolved into the water and then is taken with the water and wherever it comes out, that um, you know those minerals come out with it and that causes the pollution of some streams and rivers because some of it doesn't bubble down into the mine. Some of it will come up into other places. You can't really determine where this groundwater is gonna go and where it's gonna come out. And some of it comes out in small streams that feed into the water catchment. So it's in effect poisoning our water supply and not only ours, but all the ecosystems and all the plants and animals that rely on that water. It's poisoning their habitat and destroying those environments.
2: We're talking to Sharon Purcell in Wollongong. She represents the Protect Our Water Alliance. Coal and steel have been the backbone of jobs in the Illawarra, but long coal mining is now affecting Sydney's drinking water. I'm especially impressed by this battle because, like where you are, local people depend on the coal mines and the steelworks for jobs. And I want to know how has this community come around to the idea that their future is really... Well, some of them have come around to the idea that it's really in green steel, maybe, or green hydrogen or renewable energy. The last time I was down there at uh, Thirul, I think people were hoping that Twiggy Forest was going to come and save them. Um, I wouldn't (laughs) hold my breath for that. But how have people, I mean, surely there must be still a rump of people who say they don't want to know about it and let's keep mining. Look, I think
4: there's a lot of people who don't know about it, because let's face it, the mines don't actually say, hey, look at all the damage we're causing to the environment and how we're, you know, threatening your water supply. So it's, you know, it's, it's not exactly common knowledge. A lot of people don't understand what the catchment is. They think it's just dams, you know, and they have no idea um, that They know mines are there, but they don't know that they're underneath their water catchment and the damage that they're causing to that water catchment and their water supply or threatening all those species, including koalas, I might add, in in the catchment. And while Wollongong in particular was always seen as an industrial town um, dependent on coal and steel, that is no longer the case. It is a... It is not a massive employer of people as it once was. The industries in Wollongong that employ more people now are the universities and education, um, caring professions, health. Those uh, industries employ much more people than coal mining does in Wollongong today. Mm -hmm. The coal mines deals do have a lot of power because they make a lot of money And this is one of the reasons why Barilaro and Latham were so intent on getting that coal mine uh, made into state-significant infrastructure. Now, I might add that usually developments that are made state-significant infrastructure are things like railroads, roads, Mm. um, our water catchment and... You know, facilities. What else? Like wharves, things like that. It's not usually coal mines. Yeah, commercial coal mines for export coal. That's right. Now, the reason why they're saying that that it's state significant infrastructure is because uh, they're saying that it, if BHP doesn't get this coal, because it's metallurgical coal, it's very good quality coal and metallurgical coal is used in steelmaking. So thermal coal is used to burn, to to make electricity. That's not the coal that we're talking about here. It's metallurgical coal for steelmaking. And they're saying that if, if BHP don't get access to this mine, then not BHP, it's Blue Scope now, we'll have to close. And that is really not the case. Most of the coal that is going to be mined in this expansion. It's it's the expansion, it's, which isn't, you know, it's going to take it into, I think, 2040. So they're not even going to start mining this coal in this expansion for 20 years, is mainly going to be sent out for export. It's not yeah. gonna be used to blue sky.
2: Yeah, it's very contested. And when I last spoke to you at Thurul, my listeners, I was there at an Extinction Rebellion picnic and it was full of interesting speakers and Sharon spoke to me there. But you were very happy that day because Dendrobium Mine, I think the expansion had been stopped at that time. But, but I've recently read in um, the Centre for Corporate Responsibility, they've said this recent decision Reeks of state capture. Now, I'm not sure really what state capture means, but they said the New South Wales Mineral Council has been lobbying the government, and I want to know what state capture means and what what has happened. It sounds like it's corruption. Is that right?
4: I think what they mean by state capture is that the New South Wales state government has been captured by the coal coal companies Mm. and fossil fuel companies recently, and will basically do their bidding for them and whatever they want they will get. And, you know, that seems to be what's happened in this case. By making uh, dendrobium coal mine into a state-significant infrastructure, this is a private company that makes billions of dollars in profits, and most of that coal is exported overseas. It's not used in Blue Scope. Uh, Some of it is, but most of it is exported. They have overturned the decision of a supposedly independent body, the Independent Planning Commission, the IPC, which is the one that didn't allow the approval of the expansion, which is what we were very happy but also extremely surprised that they didn't give it the go-ahead because the IPC has recently given the Narabai gas project, the go ahead, and several other coal mine expansions. Um, Russellvale, which is just up the road from here, got an expansion just a couple of months before the Dendrobium decision was allowed. So we were totally shocked at that. And that just gives you an indication of how concerned the Independent Planning Commission was about the threat to our drinking water supply. The next day, Latham and Barilaro were up in arms in the media about it, saying how disgusting this was and how they were going to get it overturned. And so they have spent months lobbying and uh, South 32, which is the company that owns the mine, spent months lobbying and the Minerals Council spent months lobbying the government. It had to go to parliament and be discussed and virtually all the parties in parliament except the greens i think voted in favor of of making this interstate significant infrastructure including the labor party surprise surprise i am not in law but i'm open to persuasion when you think of community, uh, think of 3CR. When you think of radio, think of 3CR. This is Joan Armour Trading asking you to support your community radio station, 3CR, the only alternative. But with it, with it all...
2: You're going to. You're never going to give up. I can see that you, you'll pursue this, but it's so discouraging for for the public, you know, to think that all the efforts you've made can be just overturned like that. I'd like you to tell us now a little bit about yourself. Like Wollongong has a proud radical, you know, labour history, but this is all about saving the environment, preserving our Aboriginal heritage, and you know, biodiversity. It feels as if, to me, as if Jack Mundy's spirit is marching on <laughs> down there. Is that, is that how you feel? Has there been a sea change for you from, you know, going on strike for workers' rights and then now this?
4: Um, not really, because I've always been, you know, I was a child in the seventies when um, the Green Bands, the, the phrase Green Band was first coined by Jack Mundy. You know, that was that was amazing what they did up there. And, and that flowed on. That was like the first time in the world that it had that, that happened, that a union had taken up an environmental issue like that and put on a green ban. And I have been struggling for workers' rights and conditions. and But that's not the only thing that I've been an active around in Wollongong in all those years since, like, I've been an activist in Wollongong since the early 80s. And there's many, many issues that we've campaigned on. And a lot of them were, are environmental issues like saving and Point, for instance, from um, development and the, the um, protecting the ab- Aboriginal heritage there at and Point, Point. They've got a 10 embassy there. Um, that was a big um, struggle. I'm, um, just,
2: yeah. I'm just thinking we're going into a, a federal election now we're going to hear a lot about jobs versus the environment it's going to be all that and um, Jeff Sparrow I was reading his book called Crimes Against Nature he said it's not just capitalists capturing the state but old school leftists who see the environmental uh, who see environmentalists as middle-class dreamers and elitists hostile to the needs of working people and I want to know what what do you think especially as in the election we're going to have to join forces there needs to be some solidarity here and it doesn't sound like you have got the solidarity there of the people who are affected by this you know the people who continue to have jobs in dendrobium and jobs in steel no i
4: don't really think that's the case that it's you know i don't think people have been given a total picture of what's happening here they always try and pit us against each other to divide us, and so that we don't realise our power and defeat them. So that's what we need to do. We need to organise together and have solidarity with one another. It's it, and I don't see it that way. Really, that we're they were that divided. I mean, workers are humans, and humans live in environments, and they've always struggled to sure maintain their. Uh, jobs and conditions which you know as they should and and also they've they've put in lots of time and struggle on uh, environmental issues Mm. um some of which I've been involved in here and the unions here mining unions have been involved in environmental struggles so it's not true that we've you know, there's there's d- this divide between the so-called working class and middle class. Mm. You know, I, I don't agree with that at all.
2: Yeah, as you say, people will be divided to conquer in this way, but you've done everything. I'll just read to the listeners, you know, some of the things you've done, this is on their website, listeners, the Protect Our Water Alliance, they've done... Petitions with 10,000 people, leaflets, lobbies, they've got a state and federal MPs, they've rallied, marched, they've made submissions, they've done research, they've got councils, several councils on their side, scientific allies, seminars, public meetings. And during the pandemic, apparently, you had rolling decentralised pickets of the mine, a car convoy, a community picket during the climate conference in Glasgow highlight you know Glasgow they're making decisions about our future against coal and a Christmas themed lock on like I wonder what more can you do and what can listeners I don't want listeners to go away thinking oh look they've tried everything there's nothing more this is hopeless because this is what city people just think it must be
4: hopeless you can't do anything they've done all of that what else are you thinking of Look, there's lots of things that people can do. We're still hopeful. I mean, we never thought that the IPC decision was going to be, not given the dendrobium expansion, was going to be denied them, but it was. The main thing is to get people informed that there is mining under our catchment and the damage that it does to the, to the catchment and, and there, from there our water supply people Mm. don't know that it goes on that is the main thing that is what I'm really passionate about Mm. because I was an activist in this town as you say for decades Mm. and really I didn't understand that myself and if I don't Mm. then the normal you know person who's who's just going about their own business is not going to have a clue Look at the website, you can see um, pictures of the damage that's occurred. Mm. Um, It's horrifying. It's really horrifying what is allowed to happen. And these people are just, the the miners are basically allowed to do whatever they want. If I walked into that water catchment, I would be facing a fine of up to $44,000. Yet mine companies are allowed to go in, build roads, in air shafts you know and that's just part of their mining underneath is there any ever any
2: talk of a strike would anyone go on strike in the mine
4: just lock the mine down you know we want to support the mine workers it's not they're not to blame it is the mining companies i Mm. think with with climate change and Let's face it, mines are going to have to close down. We have to stop burning fossil fuels. Yeah. At the moment, the technology is not there for green steel, but it is coming and it's 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 happening in other places around the world. There is lots of talk of green sort of industries coming to Wollongong, which, you know, may replace the jobs in the mines um, but the problem is there's plenty of work to do here plenty of work there's plenty of jobs you know in the care industry mm. the problem is people who would have young people for instance when they leave school would have thought in this area oh I could go into a well-paying job in the mine. At the moment, they're not going to go, oh, I could go into a well-paying job in the care industry because those jobs are not well-paid. That is what needs to happen. Mm. We have plenty of socially useful jobs that need doing. Mm. What the government needs to do is make sure that those jobs have better, much better wages and much better conditions. And if that is being pointed out in the recent, you know, last two years, then... I, you know I don't know what's more obvious
2: yeah well we've done stories in the Latrobe Valley and Hunter Valley you know like all and Collie over in Western Australia interviewing people and in, and some towns some places have got a kind of a transition plan starting you know with exactly that put in place alternative and training that goes with it but I just sort of uh, really wish it was more far advanced, you know, that we, we'd we be really excited by it, really thrilled by it, headline news, you know, all this energy going into something useful, as you say, all these jobs that need to be done. And I would think restoration of the land, that broken land that you're talking about, it sounds like a lot of that needs to be restored and some of those well, things yeah. need to be plugged, don't they?
4: Well, I don't know if it ever will be. Uh, in Germany, their plan is well advanced. I think it's politicians that have been, you know, the government's really been holding back on this. They want to do everything they can for their mates in big business and in the fossil fuel industry because, you know, that's where they get a lot of their donations from, let's face it. That's why I think it's stalled a lot in this country, like Germany is much further ahead than we are. They've closed their underground coal mines down and they call it the perpetual cost. That is a cost. Of maintaining the keeping the water out of their coal mines is an eternal cost, eternal forever. Those mines never stop pumping out pollutants. Never. How do you rehabilitate that? You really don't. You just have to manage it, and it is a cost in perpetuity that we will have to bear long after those mines companies have gone Mm. and make profits elsewhere no doubt Mm. Um, as part of a mining lease they have to set aside millions of dollars to uh, to clean up in quotation marks after the mine has closed down it would be a drop in the ocean how do you rehabilitate a cracked riverbed Mm. how do you restore that to you know what it was before that mining was there you don't Uh, It's ridiculous. It's just, and I think this is why it's such a shock for them, for the mining company when they got their expansion refused, because that's never happened to them before. They've never been said no to really Mm. before. And it was like, what, what are you talking about? You're saying no to us. Mm. That doesn't happen. We get to do whatever we want <laughs> yeah
2: but
4: if only they paid those externalities
2: now you know they don't shouldn't be on the never never when they've all retired and gone to the retirement village that i mean they should be paying yeah. those external yeah. costs now anyway a lot of it you can't pay for because as you say water is priceless you don't polluting it well can't. that's right
4: like it's just, it. it's ridiculous and we know that you know once once they've apparently rehabilitated with this tiny amount of money that's hardly going to do anything that it'll be like the local people or the taxpayer who ends up paying the cost to maintain that poison water that's flowing out of that mine or Mm. rehabilitating that destroyed you know upland swamp that can no longer you know do its job of releasing water in the dry times Mm. into the rivers and streams you know it's just ridiculous but people need to you know work together and support each other and not not be divided by politicians and businesses. I mean that that's what they want. They want us to do to be divided. They'll do anything to create divisions between us because they know that if we are strong and stand together on an issue, whatever it is, we will win. So that's been a marvelous conversation with
2: uh, Sharon Purcell down at Wollongong. And I hope listeners will take note of her organization, which is called Protect Our Water Alliance. And as you've heard in graphic detail, the water that we drink in Sydney, and a lot of water catchments are like this. They're undermined by coal mines. And uh, this, this is a very ongoing campaign.
4: Thanks, Vivian. Yes, if, if listeners want to get more information about um, mining under the water catchment um, and its effects and what they can do about it and how they can spread the word, they can just go to our um, website or our Facebook page. So it's just P-O-W-A and all cap. We've put on a few forums and I think there's links to those so you could watch um, those forums online. And also there's lots of information about what you can do to help the campaign against mining in the water catchment. Thank you, Sharon. You've
2: been listening to the Climate Action Show on Community Radio 3CR in Melbourne and Radio Skid Row in Sydney. Thanks to our guests, Kurt Johnson, who's our roving reporter and also is a freelance journalist with uh, often with Renew Economy, where you can find his articles. They will be pinned to the podcast of this show. Just go to 3CR Climate Action Show and you'll find Kurt's articles linked there. Thank you also to Sharon Purcell from Protect Our Water Alliance and to Antonio Gutierrez. My name is Vivian Langford. Good night and
3: good luck.
1: This is coal. Don't be afraid. The Don't be treasure. scared. It's Cole.
0: It's
2: cold! It's cold! Tune in every Monday at 5pm to hear the Climate Action Radio Show.
3: With empty pockets, empty hands, within your voice your wealth abounds. The common currency
4: of song, we learn, we keep, we pass along.